Good morning. I wasn't expecting that song to affect me like this, but um, the page is stained with martyr's blood. A close, dear friend of mine in Myanmar, Paul Van Ray, passed away just a few weeks ago. Your church supported us to work with Paul for years, and we went throughout Myanmar working with tribes up in the hills. I rode with Paul in a 1980s Toyota Corolla through the mountains and the jungle, 13-hour drive one night. I had Paul on this side, Silas on this side. I knew it wasn't going to go well. Um, <laughs> um, your church has partnered with us for 20 years to, to do this work, to see the word of God go throughout the world. And things aren't getting better, if you haven't noticed. A teammate, a, a, a man I worked with years ago, he was telling me a story this week of doing a workshop with a team that Connie and I have worked with. And through the Zoom call, he can hear the gunfire and the bombs going off. And he's telling them, guys, do you need to go? And they're like, no, 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 we need to finish. We need, we've got to get through this. Um... You are impacting those churches, those people. You are equipping and enabling these tiny churches that are, in, that are struggling, that are persecuted, that are at risk, that are bold to do this work and see it through. So thank you and thank you, Lord, for the strength to be able to do this. Um, for those of you who don't know us, I'm Birch Champion. This is my wife, Connie. I know you're all disappointed. Our boys, Rowan and Warren, are not here. They are 18, and they have big responsibilities now, and jobs, and all of that. Um, uh, we're very, very proud of them, and uh, they're doing very, very well. Um, they're staying home a year between high school and college, and um, looking for God's leading in that area. Um, but uh, we thank you for your prayers, um, not just for our ministry, but also for our family and your love for them. Um, I know it's very disappointing when we don't bring our sons because that's what people, who people really want to see, um, but you got us instead. So today we're going to be in 1 Timothy First Timothy chapter 1, we set this up for a minute. Paul, the old preacher, the war-weary apostle, is writing to a young man, Timothy, and giving him some very practical guidance. Timothy's dealing with false teachers, and he's telling him how to, how to handle that. 
He's telling him how to set up the leadership in a church, how to uh, approach uh, different categories of people, the widows in the church, and, and how to work with them, how to be an example as a young man. He starts off here in verse 3, as I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, so false teachers, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. He then actually goes back to that in chapter 6. He mentions that same thing in verse 3 of chapter 6. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. There's debate among theologians what these myths and genealogies are. They think maybe the genealogies were the things that the Jews debated about and the myths were the things that the Gentiles and the Greeks debated about. But if we look at the fruit of these things, we see this constant friction, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. I don't know about you, but I grew up in the church and I have seen plenty of slander and constant friction and people who constantly want to argue about words. And my generation, for the most part, just said, see ya. If that's what it's about, I've got other things to do. We had one friend, someone said, oh, it's just so many of you have left, and she said, it's, it's amazing any of us stayed. We love our hobby horses. We love our, our favorite topic. But you know your neighbor who is frozen in fear right now because of all that's going on? They don't need to hear about your hobby horse. That odd guy next door, he doesn't need his, his pronouns changed. He needs his heart changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we get off on these things that we devote ourselves to. We're devoted to it. Verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. And it seems endless when we argue these things and discuss these things over and over and over again. But thankfully, Paul contrasts that with what he does devote himself to, with what is worth repeating over and over again. And in verse 12, he just waxes eloquent. It's like in, in verse 11, he was talking about 
these liars and, and these perjurers, they're, they're contrary to self-sound doctrine, and then in a, in a, it's not in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And he says the word gospel, it's like he just has to just proclaim it. He can't help but start to talk about this because this is what he's devoted to. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's open in prayer. Father, give us a heart for the good news, impress upon us today how good the gospel is, how good a Savior Jesus is. Help us to, to taste it, to long for it, to devote ourselves to the beauty of this truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Paul starts out this passage with, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. And we have to be clear here that he's not saying that, oh, because I was faithful, God then saved me. No, he was judged faithful, and then appointed. How was, how was he judged faithful? It's in the previous phrase. The strength that was given to him by Jesus Christ. It's not Paul's faithfulness, it's Christ's faithfulness, and through what Christ has done for Paul, God looks down and judges Paul according to Christ's faithfulness for him. And he's appointed to ministry. We see this in Ephesians 2, uh, verse 10, that we are, we are predestined to good works. After verses 2, 8, 2, 8 and 9, for by faith are we saved, for by grace are we saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. We receive that. What, what is that faith and what is that grace moving us toward, towards good works, towards ministry? He's appointed, Paul is appointed to the ministry here, and he recognizes, though, 
that the strength of that judgment and the strength of that appointment rests on Jesus Christ. And how he recognizes that is he tells us who he was. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was a killer of Christians, a murderer, and an insolent opponent. He insults God as his enemy as he attacked the followers of Jesus Christ. There's two ways that man tends to relate to God. One is through rebellion. The other is through self-righteousness, or we could call it religion. We, we, the, the rebel looks at God and says, I want your stuff on my terms. I'm going to enjoy this life and the things you have made my way. I'm going to do it for my pleasure. You think of, of um, <laughs> I did it my way, uh, Frank Sinatra, that, that that's just like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be my own man. I'm going to do it. Um, uh, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Princess Elsa from Frozen. Um, th this is... <laughs> we have this nature that we want to do it our own way. And, and, and the prodigal son says this to his dad. He says, Dad, I just want your stuff. Just, just give it to me now and I will go and I will use it and I will waste it. And so the father divides his life the text says, for his son and gives it to him and he destroys it. But the other way that man relates to God is through, I'm going to do good. I'm going to earn God's blessing. I'm going to deserve him to like me. He has to take me to heaven because I'm such a, such a good person. And they, they've, they've bought into the basic premise of all false religion, which is that you do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. That, that sums up every false religion. But when I start to think about it, just as Paul does here, and I begin to think of every evil thought, every time that I've thought of myself as better than the person I'm talking to, every time that, that I have lusted after someone and objectified them or used them or manipulated them in some way for my own purposes, every time that I've just proudly thought of myself as, oh, I'm so good. All that wickedness, all that arrogance, all that anger, all that lust is just piled up here. And do I really think that my few good works are going to make up for that? That if I do good, I get good, I do bad, I get bad, if that's true, I'm in really, really big trouble. And the man who is self-righteous is truly a blasphemer of God because he's saying I can be good enough to attain to an almighty eternal creator and I can be enough. That's, that's, that's demeaning to God. It's derogatory. It's, it's blasphemous that you would even think that. And so 
The story of the prodigal son, the son comes home. The father, he has a plan. He's going to be like the older brother. He's going to be self-righteous. He's going to earn his way back into the family. And the father says, no, come with love. Receive my robe, my ring. Come, be my true son. And he has a party for him. He's celebrating that his son has come home. And he goes out to the older brother. He says, come, your brother's home. Enjoy this. Come, enjoy, celebrate this with us. The son says, I worked in the fields for you. I've obeyed you. I've done all the good stuff. And you never once gave me a party. And he's saying the exact same thing that his rebellious brother said. I just did it so I could get your stuff, Dad. It wasn't because I loved you. It wasn't because I had a relationship. Why do you think I've been doing this all this time? But there's a third way to relate to God. And that's through Jesus Christ. That's through the grace that cuts through this pattern, this, this karma of good and bad. And it, it cuts through my huge pile of sin and says, I'm not going to make you reap what you have sown. Christ took that on himself. Look at this next section here. He's this insolent opponent, but, but I received mercy I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And what he's saying there, he's, he's not excusing himself because he'll talk about how evil he is. He's saying, that was my status. I was helpless to do anything about it. I had to receive mercy. I had to be pitied because there was nothing I could do. And then grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He has received mercy. He has received grace. He has received faith. He has received love in Christ Jesus. And if you are here this morning and you are chasing after love, if you are chasing after grace or mercy or truth, you're chasing after something you can truly put your faith in, something you can truly trust that won't let you down. All the things, success, pleasure, material wealth, fame, all of it is empty at the bottom, and you will need something else to chase after, and you will need another thing, and another, and another, and it won't satisfy. But look at this. Grace overflows. What that means is it is filling and refilling and filling again and overflowing. It's not empty at the bottom. It never, it's never empty because grace flows from Christ to us, filling us, giving us what we truly need. And if you put your faith, if you put your trust that Christ 
has paid for your sin, then He truly will save you. If you recognize, as Paul, that you are an insolent opponent, an insulting enemy of God, and you have no hope in your unbelief, but you turn to Him in belief, in faith, that what Jesus Christ, the payment that He made for your sin, for that sin, and the victory that He won through rising again, through coming back from the dead, that that victory defeated the power of sin, defeated the power of death, defeated the punishment of hell. If you are trusting in Jesus' work, that he has done that, then you will find grace that overflows for you, mercy that, that washes you clean, and a love that captures you, that, that holds on to you, that doesn't let you go. Then Paul gives this introductory phrase, and this is just like, he's just saying, okay, listen up, people. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He does this a few times throughout the epistles, but he's, he's just saying that, okay, I'm about to drop a truth bomb, and you need to hear it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. One commentator said that this is this, this phrase so often that said summaries uh, will, will leave us wanting and won't be sufficient, but that this phrase truly encapsulates the essence of the gospel, even though you can write volumes on the truth of the gospel. Paul has taken this and just and given it to us in this this truth that we can cling to, that Christ Jesus, when I was a child I thought Christ was Jesus' last name, that it was Jesus Christ, but actually it's his title, it is Christ Jesus, he, Christ the, uh, the anointed one, and when Christ went to the synagogue, Luke chapter 4 tells us that he asked for the scroll of Isaiah to be brought to him. And this is what he says. He, Isaiah 17, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news, that's the gospel, to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He sent to, to proclaim liberty to the captives. My chains are gone. I've been set free. Recovering sight to the blind. I once was blind, but now... I see. This is Christ was anointed for this very purpose. And this is this 
this term to, to call uh, Jesus this man, to call him the Christ, it is offensive to the Jews because it means he's the Messiah. It's offensive to the Greeks because the emperor, he was the anointed one of the gods, and because he was anointed by the gods, he himself was a deity, a god. And yet we're saying, no, no, no. Christ Jesus. This is truly the anointed one. Jesus, speaking of his humanity, that he was born just as we are. He was named in the womb. This is his, his name that, that, that he comes as a baby, crying, weak, dirty, a child just like us. Tempted as we are, knowing the pain and suffering that we know, that we experience. And yet, without sin. This anointed one leaves his rightful place in glory to come as a servant, to come in fashion as a man, to come like us and be God with us and suffer alongside us and then suffer for us. Why did he come? He came to save sinners. He came to rescue because we are all dying of a universal disease that is called sin. He didn't come to save you from your bad relationships. He didn't come to save you from your bad finances or your poor health. He came to save you from your sin because that is truly your deepest and biggest need is that before God, you are, just as Paul said, the blasphemer. You are the one who has shaken your fist at God. And yet, he, his, his plan to overcome the, his enemies, which we were, is to come and save us, to rescue us and make us whole, and bring us in as sons and daughters into his family. And then Paul, once again, recognizes his place in this story. Of whom I am foremost. This is me. This is, this is I am the, the, the number, I'm the guy at the top of the list. I'm the top sinner. Or the bottom. And, and Paul is recognizing that, and, and telling us that if, if Christ could save me, he could save anyone. No one is beyond his, his, the reach of his power and his salvation. And Paul says, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, what he's saying is, that 
This gospel, this salvation that he has received is working out as an ongoing example in his life. That this is not just a one-time event that happened, that occurred, and then now he moves on from the mercy and grace that was shown to him. No, he's now living that out, living a life that reflects the good news, the salvation that has been given to him through Jesus Christ. One of my favorite preachers likes to say, there's two kinds of people in the world, those that need the gospel and those that need the gospel. We, saved or unsaved, what we need is to truly, deeply be captured by the good news that Jesus Christ saves sinners. And that should be what's on the tip of our tongues. That should be what we're devoted to, what we, what we talk about, what saturates our lives, what we're setting the example for others that Jesus Christ has done this. I think often we shortchange this process by forgetting who we truly are before God. That we are the foremost of sinners. That that's me too. And what happens is that we have been made righteous, we have been made worthy, and we begin to think of ourselves as the ones who do this. As the ones who, and, and, what, and the world looks at us and says, wow, well you're just, you're a good person, and I'm not. And that is, that's, it's so, so difficult to, to have other people understand that it's not that I'm good, it's that I have a good God, that I have a loving God. I have a, a pastor friend who, um, his daughter was uh, born with Downs, and he was telling me, we were having a conversation about this, and he was telling me that, he was mowing his lawn, and his neighbor called him over and said, how did the pregnancy go? How did the birth go, the delivery and everything? And so he, he shared with this neighbor that they didn't know it ahead of time, but their, their daughter had Downs, and they're working through that, and there's so many unknowns when, when a, a child is born, and, and um, just the, the fears. And the, this, this neighbor said, well, you've got a strong faith. And the pastor went back to his, his uh, mowing, and as he started mowing, he just began weeping, and, and just almost anger and frustration just building up in him. It's not that I have a strong faith. It's that I have a strong God. And that is the posture that Paul takes in the whole introduction to this section. I thank Him who has given me strength. That we recognize, yes, Yes, we've been made righteous. Yes, God loves us so much that he, he forgave us and He has made us sons and daughters. That's wonderful. But if the process stops there, we've missed the point it, that we, we take that and we say, someone like me could be made righteous, could be made worthy. How is that even possible? It's only possible because of who Jesus Christ is and that we're reflecting that back. 
and saying, it's not about me, and it's not about my strength and my strong faith. It's about my strong Savior who has the power to save sinners. That's who we reflect. That's who we glorify. That's who we need the world to see. That this example that Paul is setting, that he says, I, this was done so that Jesus Christ might show an example through me, that me, as the foremost of sinners, that God's power is sufficient and even overflowing, more than sufficient, to save a sinner like him. And then he just explodes in worship to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. He just, it's, he just can't help it to point and reflect back to how big, how great God is because of what has been done for him. So what do we take away from this? First of all, God is awesome and we are not. And our lives should reflect that. Second, second that this overflow in Paul's life, this, this, this devotion to the gospel is overflowing from him. It overflowed so much that he wrote scripture. Most likely none of us are going to do that anytime soon. But it also overflowed in him with a lifelong passion to see churches planted. And we should take that, when, when we can't really grasp when we start tasting what how good the good news is our passion to see that message spread through the work of the church should should capture us we should want to see that we should long to hear stories of that we should we should long to see churches that are multiplying other churches spreading out going throughout the world that should be a passion of ours. This, this passion for the gospel overflows in, from him in this letter to Timothy, a young man that he's discipling. And if you are, if you are captured by the gospel and you have, have are, are a mature believer, a mature child of God, you should have a desire to show others that this is the way. To disciple a young man, a young woman. I have talked to, to many young men uh, throughout the country in churches. And they are sitting in these seats and they are longing for an older man to disciple them. And they have questions and they are confused and they have struggles and they, they have temptations and they would love to be discipled. Older men, they don't need your opinions. They need the gospel. They need the truth. 
They need to know how to reflect Christ in their marriage and in their finances and in their job and in their struggle with temptation. How do they show that they have a good Savior? That's what they need to know. Now, young men, the truth is that no one's going to come alongside you and say, hey, I see that you're having some financial problems. I'd, I'd like, to, like to talk to you about that because they don't know that you have that. You have to be teachable. You have to be open. You have to be transparent where you say, I need help. Where you wave and you say, I'm, I'm drowning. I'm not waving. I'm drowning. And the older man comes alongside you and teaches you. And if you see a, a, a couple that, that, wow, how can they still be in love? And, and, and you see them and you think, I want that. I want my marriage to be like that 40 years from now. Then go to that man. Because they've seen hard times. They've suffered. They've gone through conflict. They've experienced pain and hurt. And somehow Jesus brought them through. And you need to find out that way, that this is the way, this is the path to walk through. This should overflow in our love to share the gospel with those who, who do not know the good news. To love our neighbors, to show them the mercy and grace that we have been shown. Just as Paul, just it's woven into his speech that he, he just gets to this point and he just has to express the gospel. That in our daily life, that it's not just here that we're singing about it and talking about it, but that day to day, that we are so enraptured by the beauty of what has been done for us that we can't help but speak of it. And folks, we don't need to work this up and just white-knuckle it in that whole self-righteousness of, oh, I'm going I'm, I'm to really love the gospel now. God doesn't do that. If God tells us to love something, it's truly worth loving. And the more you taste it, the more you fall in love with it. And the more you recognize your position as a sinner, and you may not have even known the depth of your sin when you came to Christ, but as you get to know Him more and more and love Him more and more, you recognize what a desperate situation you were in and how amazing it is that He would save you. And when, when that that realization comes to you, you're able to just express it and just tell others of what you need to know in this moment of fear, in this moment of loss, is that God is actually for you, not against you. And Jesus Christ's sacrifice on your behalf proves that God is for you. And He's a loving God. And he wants you to come to him so that you can know him and know his mercy and his overflowing grace. We are people who overflow with worship and awe 
of what God has done for us because His mercy and His grace and His love has overflowed for us. Let's close in prayer. Father, help us to be moved with compassion for the lost and simultaneously be, just be in awe of what you've done for us and how we, how we could possibly be your sons and daughters. How that would even, even in any possibility of happening and yet it is true. Help us to show that we thank you for the strength that was given to us. Thank you that you are a strong God when we are weak. Help us to live lives in a posture of gratitude and worship that overflow in joy that the good news is true, that Christ Jesus came to save sinners. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank